I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. And welcome in. Lake Kick is live. It is Sunday night, June 14th, the year of our Lord, 2020. We've got a jam-packed show tonight. We're going a bunch of different directions. It's largely reactionary to just a lot of things that I have heard from you, believe it or not. Yes, I've just sat around and listened this week, and I've listened to you talk about everything from who's overrated to which rivalries matter to whose year it is. And believe it or not, again, second time I've said that in 45 seconds, I've got a few takes and reactions to all of that. So we're really happy to have you here. Subscribe to the 24-7 Sports YouTube channel if you haven't already, and find the Late Kick podcast and subscribe there as well. Those five-star reviews and written reviews sure do help over there. More on the podcast later. Overrated, Jim Harbaugh, those two find their way into respective article titles and podcasts and show titles all the time. We're going to lead the show with that in just a second. I'm going to talk, as I said, about a rivalry that matters a great deal to certain portions and certain people in the South. And it really matters nationally, just maybe in a different way, maybe not quite as emotionally. Also, whose year is it? And I'm talking really hyper-specifically about the SEC Eastern Division. I've been looking around at those aforementioned preview magazines, even our own Brandon Marcello here in-house releasing his uh, season predictions, SEC East going the way of the Florida Gators. We'll see. Not necessarily tonight in terms of prediction from us, but I'm just going to talk a little bit about what needs to happen this year for Florida and what you're thinking. I was over on the uh, Swamp 24-7 message board a fair amount today interacting with some of you, so we will discuss all that. Let's start it off, though. Going to talk about Jim Harbaugh here. I want to take you, though, into a delivery room. You know how much I love metaphorical analyses, so let's do it tonight. There he is, your newborn son, right there. It's a miracle of life, and you look at him and you say, wow, look at those limbs already pretty long, you know, that kid's gonna be seven foot tall. My son, my newborn son, he's been alive two minutes, I think he's gonna be seven feet tall. Fast forward 25 years, there's your son. He's a full grown man. He is a healthy, thank God, six foot two, good job, perfectly fully functioning adult male, and yet you look at him every day and say, you are so short. Well, not really, Dad. He is six foot two, which is well above the national American average for males, but because you expected seven feet, he is, at least when it comes to height, a complete failure. Most of you probably see where this is going, but humor me anyway. So let's talk about Jim Harbaugh for a second. Now let me first, before I criticize anyone else, tell you my general thoughts on Jim Harbaugh. I said point blank when he got hired at Michigan, I thought that he was going to be to Urban Meyer in the Big Ten, what Nick Saban had been to Urban Meyer in the SEC. I thought he could run him out of the conference. I thought he could overtake him, run him out of the conference. Now, history says that that didn't quite happen, but I've, I've been mildly disappointed, I will say, in what Harbaugh hasn't been able to accomplish at Michigan. 
I don't think he's a failure by any stretch of the imagination at Michigan, and I have never called him, nor to my knowledge, any head coach period overrated. But I do that or don't do that, rather, for a very specific reason. So those are my general feelings on Jim Harbaugh. That's where I stood at the time. I made a very, very, as it turns out, terrible prediction at the time about Jim Harbaugh. So my prediction sucked. Jim Harbaugh didn't suck. My prediction sucked. So with that in mind, Let's move on now, because there have been a lot of headlines this past couple of weeks, as there are this time every year, about who's overrated, which programs and which coaches are overrated. Of course, Jim Harbaugh, you've heard the names. I don't need to really rehash it or you know flash the headlines on the screen there. You've heard the names. You've seen the national headlines. So-and-so says Jim Harbaugh is the most overrated head coach in America. Well, based on what scale is what I always ask. Anytime you tell me a guy's overrated, I ask, what scale are we working on here? Because I ask this simple question about Jim Harbaugh. Yes or no, is Michigan in a better position now than they were the day he was hired? I think unequivocally, even his detractors would have to admit this much to you. The answer is yes. As far as I can tell, that's the definition of success. At the very least, it's the definition of improvement. So if you've improved something, you can't be a failure. So we're not using the term failure. A lot of people are using the term overrated. I just want to establish what scale we're using here. And if we're not using the scale of are you better or worse than you were when he arrived, there has to be some other scale in play. So what I like to do when anyone's talking about overrated, so-and-so's overrated, I ask you, don't necessarily listen to the what that's being said. Listen to who's saying it. Identify who's talking about how overrated Jim Harbaugh is, and then you need to hop in your time machine, and let's hit the not-so-way-back button. Let's go back a few years, say six years, when Jim Harbaugh's being introduced, and like me, a lot of these folks who were slapping the overrated sticker on Jim Harbaugh's forehead, they were making predictions the day and the weeks following his hiring, too. And they were probably saying things very much in line with what I was saying. They probably expected him to do a version of what I expected him to do, which was take over that man there who was presently perched atop the Big Ten every year in Urban Meyer. And he was going to run things up there and Michigan was going to win who knows how many Big Ten championships. College football playoff was still pretty new back then, brand new. How many college football playoff trips was he going to make? Michigan's going to be at least in the conversation every year, if not there. And everyone made these grandiose predictions and then they didn't come true and you arrive at a classic media conundrum. I'm not saying fans didn't make predictions, but fans don't garner national headlines. Media types do. So that classical media conundrum that you see folks arrive at is you have got a system in place wherein you get to create the expectation, you get to create the bar, you get to establish it, and then someone doesn't live up to your expectation, and someone doesn't meet the bar that you set for them, and instead of looking in the mirror and saying, well, my prediction, maybe even my opinion is overrated, you also, on the back end, get to label the people who didn't meet your expectations a failure. Now, I personally have never chosen to do it that way. I'll have expectations just like anyone else. I just told you five minutes ago, I thought this guy, I thought Jim Harbaugh was going to overtake Urban Meyer in the Big Ten I thought, to be perfectly clear, they were going to be the alpha program on the block in the Big Ten. To this point, they haven't done that. That doesn't mean Jim Harbaugh's overrated. That means, again, my opinion sucked. I was wrong about him. That doesn't mean he's overrated. Now, Michigan fans have a different take on this, maybe twofold. Michigan fans may look at what I just said and listen to what I just said and say, 
yeah, I kind of agree with a lot of that. Now, I'm not necessarily thrilled with where we are, but he's right. Some people nationally have been too hard on Harbaugh, or maybe you sit there and you say, no, I also think Harbaugh is very overrated. I think we pay him too much. I don't like what we've gotten. Maybe even, I would still call it a minority fringe of you, but maybe a minority fringe of you even want to see change there. Whatever the case may be, you're in a separate camp for me. I take Michigan fans, I take Michigan supporters, alums, I take all of those folks, they're in a different camp entirely. I don't mind, as I've told you with Georgia in the past, Georgia fans got sky-high expectations, they got a sky-high standard of what they hold Kirby Smart and their program to. I've never had a problem with it for reasons that I've stated before, and I'll state again here as it, re as it re relates to Michigan. If you're doing everything they're asking you to do, if you're writing your check every year, if you're selling out the big house every Saturday, if you're attending every event, if you are fully calibrating the various financial pipelines that need to be calibrated in order for Michigan to operate at the level they do, then why not have sky high, sky high expectation? Like, if you're giving everything that they're asking you to give, why not expect a big time return on your investment? You have what's best for Michigan at the forefront of your mentality, though, and your concern. That's where your heart is. People who are making predictions, who work for major networks, they couldn't care less about Michigan, really, in the grand scheme of things, unless they graduated from there, or if they work for the Big Ten Network and it greatly behooves them for Michigan to be great. Most of these folks want to swoop in, say something, get the traction for a day and a half, and swoop out. So those people, when I hear them say, oh, Jim Harbaugh is overrated, According to what? Well, really, when we dig down deep, he's overrated according to expectations that I had for him. Well, what if your opinion's overrated? And Jim Harbaugh is just a guy who's improved Michigan and may even improve them more with a recent offensive coordinator hire that, if we give it a little bit of time, could take root and end up being a positive addition in Ann Arbor. What if that's where we stand right now? What if expectations were inflated? I don't know. But that's the general take, at least in this camp, when it comes to Jim Harbaugh. Now I wanna shift your attention all the way down south, not all the way. I mean, we're not going to the Gulf Coast necessarily, although we are going to two states which border the Atlantic and the Gulf of Mexico. College football is kind of strange sometimes when it comes to rivalries. You've got the national ones now. Those are the ones on the front page of all the storybooks and the history of college football. I don't need to tell anyone, even if you're not from the South, about the Iron Bowl. Recently, Alabama-LSU has been a huge rivalry. Uh, Georgia-Florida is really big down here. And I also don't need to tell anyone nationally that, hey, Michigan-Ohio State, really big rivalry. OU-Texas, really big rivalry. No one needs to be told that. But there are these sort of regional pockets. That's really what college football is, just a bunch of regional pockets. And there are certain games that matter really, really a great deal in those regional pockets that probably aren't talked about a whole lot nationally. One of those is Alabama versus Georgia. You have seen these teams play a few times recently, but by and large, they're not regular crossover divisional opponents. They don't reside in the same division of the SEC. They don't play regularly, last few seasons notwithstanding. And it's not talked about as a national rivalry. Uh, but I want to tell you, it's a huge deal down here, and I had a question or two about it in the Late Kick Extra inbox for the podcast, and I figured, well, we've got five people asking about this. Why don't we just go ahead and talk about it on the show? The way I've always described these fan bases is, is that Eddie Lacy? Colin, yeah, it is. These fan bases, just take Alabama, Georgia, put them side by side, let's make a big pie chart out of it, and just split it into quadrants. Because... You do not have a consensus on either side of the aisle 
when it comes to how people view this quote-unquote rivalry. You've got Alabama fans who focus on Auburn first and foremost and really get aggravated when a portion of their fan base tends to obsess with Georgia. You've got another portion of the Alabama fan base who says Georgia's a lot bigger threat to us in terms of getting to a national championship than Auburn is, and we really feel like they recruit more on par with us, and if we take care of our business, we'll beat Auburn. Georgia's the one who has our attention. And then on the other side of the Chattahoochee River, you got Georgia fans who say, why don't we focus on Florida? Like, why do you guys worry about Alabama? They're not even on our regular season schedule this year, notwithstanding. And then you got other folks in the state of Georgia and in the Georgia fan base who say, hey, man, that's the standard there. And until we beat them, it doesn't matter. We, we've handled Florida. This is the team in our way. There is no consensus. Even as I talk about this, Georgia fans and Bama fans argue about this. There are sizable portions of each respective fan base that say, what are you so worried about Georgia for? What are you so worried about Alabama for? Let me tell you, having grown up on the border of Alabama and Georgia geographically and having gone to Middle school, elementary school, high school, all my life I have spent sandwiched in the middle of this stuff. Georgia hates Alabama for a number of reasons. But let me tell you really what it comes down to. Alabama, at least under Nick Saban, has been for the last decade plus what Georgia always should have been in the mind of a Georgia fan. Georgia fan looks at Bama and what they've done under Saban. And they think to themselves, and they're not wrong, by the way, what is it they have that's allowing them to do what they've done that we aren't capable of? And the answer is nothing. Bama fan will retort with, we got more tradition. What kind of tradition did Clemson have until they started winning national championships and going to the playoff every year? Very, very overrated. What it takes is it takes full buy-in, financially and otherwise. It takes full buy-in. And Saban walked in Alabama and backhanded a bunch of people across the mouth, maybe in some cases literally, but really figuratively he did that and he took them by the shoulders and he woke them up and said, this is what we got to do if you want these kinds of results. And Saban got it. Mark Richt did not get that at Georgia. Biggest credit to Kirby Smart, as I've said a number of times over the last few months, he has gotten it at Georgia. So only recently has the head coach at Georgia, being Kirby Smart, gotten full buy-in at his respective outpost to the degree that Nick Saban has. Still hadn't beaten Alabama, though. So you've got that to worry about, and you got Kirby Smart that has forced some change there. As for the Alabama side of things, there is a perception amongst pretty much the entirety of the Alabama fan base that there's an arrogance about Alabama that is earned they point, or there's no need to point any further than the trophy case. There's an arrogance that's earned, and they look over in Athens, Georgia, and places elsewhere, and they see a very similar arrogance to the kind they have. They just don't think it's earned. They look at their trophy case, and they say, there's 09, there's 11, there's 12, there's 15, there's 17. We can't even fit all these in our hands anymore. And Georgia, you have... If not for us, maybe you'd have a lot, but right now you have. And so that's part one of what aggravates him. But I'll tell you, if you dive a little bit deeper, you know, Bear Bryant, when he was at Alabama, used to always say, if the University of Florida ever got their act together, they would be a terror for the rest of us to deal with. He understood the untapped potential of that program. And I think now that Florida has long since had the Spurrier era and the Meyer era, they've won big down there. A lot of people in college football in the SEC and in Alabama circles had looked at Georgia and said, you know, Rick's over there and he's doing a good job, but good sometimes is the enemy of great. If they were to ever get a guy in there that got them 
fully on board to, to the degree we are here in Tuscaloosa, they would be a nightmare to deal with. And Kirby Smart, I'm not telling you he's Nick Saban 2.0. I am telling you he's gotten everybody fully on board over there. There are no 14 people sometimes pulling in 14 different directions and let's take care of the men's putt-putt team before we fully invest in an extra two bodies for the recruiting staff. Those aren't conversations they have at Georgia anymore. So a lot of people are threatened by it. Even though they haven't beaten you yet, a lot of people are threatened by it. But I want you, if you want to understand the vitriol and the hatred, especially from the G towards the A, think about it, take yourself, close your eyes if you want to, and put yourself in the shoes of a Georgia Bulldog fan. I'm talking die hard Georgia Bulldog fan. You live, sleep, eat, breathe with every snap. You know every three-star recruit you sign. They don't do that so much anymore, much less the five stars. And I want you to go back to 2000. And seven, eight, Nick Saban comes into Alabama. Mark Rick's already been at Georgia. Actually beat, yeah, beat Alabama your first year over there in Tuscaloosa. I think that's a game I was at, an overtime game. But anyway, you fast forward a few years, and there Saban wins a championship in 09, and then you meet them in Atlanta, SEC title game, 2012. And you're, you're flying down the field with not much time left, and you get towards the end zone, and all of a sudden, you run out of time. It's just this close, right there. There's the play. Colin's showing it to you. That is how close Georgia is to the end zone when the SEC championship game ends. Alabama wins. They go on to face a badly outmanned Notre Dame team. You are sitting at home knowing full well this right here in Atlanta, GA, was the national title game. If you win that one, you're probably going to paint the walls with Notre Dame's blood in Miami, just like Alabama did. That's how close Georgia is to a national title. You fast forward three years. Alabama's already lost a game in the regular season. They're coming into your building. You're favored. And they just thrashed them. 38 to 10, I want to say it was. Pouring down rain, miserable day. If you're a Georgia Bulldog fan, that was about the last time you were ever going to take Mark Rick's odds of winning a national title at Georgia seriously. Fast forward two more years. You've got a new head coach. He's in his second year, and he gets you to the SEC championship game. You avenge your loss to Auburn. You go to the Rose Bowl. What a scene out there in Pasadena, semifinal game. You go to overtime. You beat the University of Oklahoma, and guess where you're headed? You're headed to Atlanta, Georgia for the national championship game in your own backyard. And there you are at halftime, and you're shutting that team out, and they put a true freshman in at quarterback, and they come back, and they beat you in overtime in one of the most unforeseen manners imaginable, and that's how close you were to another national championship. And the very next year, in the same building, in the SEC championship game, you are owning them on the line of scrimmage, and the quarterback that came in to beat you the year before gets knocked out, and the one that got benched the year before comes in, and they come back and beat you again, and you're that close to going on to possibly play for another national championship. That team right there, for all you know, has cost you one, two, three shots, maybe four, at least three, at a very, very real possibility of winning a national championship. You measure yourself against them. You have gotten 
the guy who runs the program in Tuscaloosa's old defensive coordinator as your man. He's from Bainbridge, Georgia. He has recruited lights out. He's out-recruited Alabama in a couple of cycles, and yet you keep on coming up against a brick wall, and it looks like it cracks, but you just bounce off of it. You've got, to me, a tier one program in the University of Georgia. People have argued with me on that because they haven't won a championship, but I don't view, when I'm tiering teams, I'm not doing it by trophy case. I'm doing it at what level are they operating at currently? And that program in Athens, Georgia, has got a loaded roster. They are a powerhouse program. They just exist in the same era. They have existed in the same stretch where the greatest dynasty in the history of college football has. How would Les Miles be remembered? How would LSU have been remembered pre-Ed Orgeron differently if they didn't exist? How would Mark Richt, for that matter, have been remembered if he didn't have to compete in the same era that Nick Saban was at Alabama? But the bottom line is, he does. And that brings me back, by the way, to 2017. I thought for all the good that the college football playoff has done for us, when you're talking about the flavor of this Georgia-Alabama rivalry, the college football playoff robbed us in 2017. 2017, if you have forgotten how it shook out, yeah, you know the game. Yeah, you probably even remember the semifinals. Uh, I was in New Orleans for Alabama Clemson. That was pretty easy, relatively speaking, an easy win for Alabama. And it was a classic in the Rose Bowl, Georgia, Oklahoma. And you set up this titanic showdown, at least for those of us in the South, Alabama versus Georgia. But what you probably don't remember is all the buildup, cause there was none because the game took place seven days later, and it was one that deserved such a better and, and stretched out buildup. I remember, you know, I used to watch pro wrestling a lot, and when you're talking promotion, that is the world that pro wrestling exists in. It's all about promotion. One of my favorite main event fights or matches, if you will, of any era was Steve Austin versus The Rock at WrestleMania 17. 2001. It was in the Astrodome in Houston. And the buildup was months and months in advance. And they promoted it perfectly. I've never seen a more perfectly put together buildup to a big money main event level match. And so that was very well done. That's the way this kind of game should be treated. But instead it had six days once you get back home. And so the buildup should have been so much more. I remember thinking to myself, Okay, we just had Alabama over Clemson. Remember, Clemson had beaten Alabama in the championship game the year before. So there had been a year-long build-up to that. Bama gets over Clemson. Georgia, in the playoff for the first time, they get over Oklahoma, and you want to decompress. And I, I'm, all I'm doing is going and sitting in a press box or standing on a sideline. I remember getting home from New Orleans thinking, oh, man, this next game's six days away? I'd, I'd love to do a week of reaction for what we just saw. And then another week's buildup, and nope, didn't have it that way. So that's the only thing that I didn't like about 2017. I also thought it was just trash to expect Georgia to go all the way to the West Coast, play an overtime, emotionally draining game, and you're going to come right back and play a national title game. Biggest game in your program's history in a generation or two, six days later. I digress. Week three this year, this game happens. Don't know if it's going to be on schedule. Don't know how many people are going to be in the stands, but it is currently slated to take place in week three. So just keep this in the back of your mind as the season, as scheduled, slowly but steadily approaches. 
Introducing the two-way V4, where groundbreaking fuel cell technology meets fresh foam cushioning for the ultimate performance. With fuel cell, each step feels explosive, delivering unparalleled energy return. Paired with fresh foam, experience maximum comfort throughout the game. Its lightweight textile upper offers support and breathability without sacrificing agility. Whether you're hitting the clutch shot or locking down the opposition, the two-way V4 gives you the tools to play at a high level. Learn more and purchase the two-way for yourself at newbalance.com. Hey, I'm Brett Podolsky, co-founder of The Farmer's Dog. We make fresh food for dogs. We started the company when we saw what a huge difference it made in my own dog, Jada, when she stopped eating ultra-processed kibble and started eating fresh, whole food. The Farmer's Dog food isn't fancy. It's just real food delivered to your door in pre-portioned packs. It's better for them and easier for you. Get 50% off your first box at thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. That's thefarmersdog.com slash podcast. Speaking of the season, speaking of even the SEC Eastern Division, have you noticed something? I picked up a couple of magazines the other day, and I was looking at predictions, and I was looking at unit rankings, and a lot of this stuff to me is more entertainment than information, simply because, you know I've told you many times, I don't think there's skill in predicting a season a whole lot to begin with, but especially... As I sit here, before we haven't had a spring and won't have a spring, before we had any kind of feedback from camps and whatnot, I mean, how is anyone predicting anything? But I digress. I understand why it's done. So I'm reading some of these magazines, and I found something funny. Predict what you want to predict. I just want to look at the reason. I want to look at the logic behind it. If I'm going to predict Florida to win the SEC East, You better believe I'm not going to, in the same magazine, tell you, I think Georgia's got the better offensive line. I think Georgia's got the better defensive line. I think Georgia's got the better quarterback, but I'm going to still predict Florida to win the division. Make it make sense. Anyway, consequences of success are something that we talk about on this show a lot. Dan Mullen in Florida could be ready to deal with some of those consequences of success. Here's one of the consequences. If you've been 7-5 and forever... You can go into a season and lose a game to your biggest rival, but if you still go to a New Year's Six game, that's a big deal. Florida's done that two years in a row now. They've had really good years. There's no criticizing Florida. They've had really good years. Now you get the consequence. Good enough is no longer enough. I'm over on the Swamp 24-7 message board today. That's the Florida branch of 247sports.com. And I was asking some of the folks over there. I'll get to their answers in a second. I was saying, hey, I know what your expectation is, like, likely know your expectation this year, but if Florida doesn't achieve that, what do you think? See, here's the good news for Florida right now. The good news, and there's a lot of it, the good news is Mullins in year three, so you know you take your thumb as a head coach and you press it against your program. Well, year three, you can pull the thumb away. I mean, your fingerprint is firmly entrenched on the program. For better or for worse, it reflects you as a head coach. So if you believe in Dan Mullen, that's very good news. You know you've got Kyle Trask at quarterback. In fact, it's just nice to know what you're going to have at quarterback, period. Much less knowing you've got a very skilled and now veteran option at quarterback. So you've got certainty there. You've got stability along your coaching staff. Your schedule is very favorable this year, as favorable as it can get in the SEC. Everything's been geared towards 2020. Everything. And it's like, if you're at a restaurant, you keep getting appetizers. And, oh, that one was good, and that one was really good, but eventually, you're ready for the main course. 2020 is the main course for Florida. And if 2020 brings out another appetizer for them, they are not going to be happy at all. So as I told you, I go over to Swamp 247 today. And I just ask kind of a version of, 
It's all well and good if Florida wins the East. If they don't, you go from sky high expectation to losing the East, again, presumably to Georgia. And if it's not due to catastrophic injury, like if Kyle Trask and five other starters don't go down and you just lose the division straight up, what is your reaction? So I got a couple of reactions here. Gator Fanatic 24-7, which sounds almost like a corporate Florida fan. I'm not mad at it, though. The expectation is to win the East this year. Anything less is a failure. We have elite depth at quarterback, basically two starting caliber guys, experienced O-line, good talent at the skill positions, probably the most veteran secondary we've had since Muschamp. In my opinion, if Mullen can't beat Georgia and win the East this year, my confidence that he ever does it will be slim to none. I want you to think about what he just said. I think that's what the majority of Florida fans feel like. I believe that's probably very close to being in line with what I think about Florida. I'm not ready to give you a prediction on the East. I have no clue. You might as well throw a dart against a board right now in, in lieu of getting my prediction. But I will tell you this, there's immense pressure on Dan Mullen. When it comes to major programs, you may very well be accurate in saying there is no power five head coach of note out there at a program expected to contend that has more pressure on his shoulders than Dan Mullen this year. Because that, what I just read from the poster there, that is the collective attitude. And it's my attitude towards Florida too. If not now, then when? Everyone's talking about closing the gap. Everyone's talking about what it's going to take to beat Georgia. And then what it's going to take to recruit closer to being on par with them. And the answer is usually, well, beat them. Show recruits you can beat them. Uh, that does a lot to convince guys to go to Gainesville instead of Athens. But quarterback is there. Offensive, uh, you look at the offensive coordinator. I mean, think about this. This is not just in a vacuum. You got all the positives I just told you for Florida. But think about what's happening in conjunction with all this at Georgia with the quarterback position. They got confidence in Jamie Newman. They don't really know what they have. He's not a proven commodity there. New offensive coordinator, you lose spring. They've got a tougher schedule than you do. Their two cross-division opponents are at Alabama and Florida. You got LSU at home, and you got at Ole Miss. There are scenarios where you could lose to Georgia and still win the East. I, a lot of you told me that would be bittersweet, but sweet nonetheless. People just don't appreciate. I think a lot of folks don't appreciate. A lot of folks really don't appreciate how thin the margin is here and how a few games and really a few drives in a few games are going to be the difference in Dan Mullen being unequivocally called the top head coach in the SEC East versus people saying it's time to start thinking about the long-term future here because if he couldn't have gotten it done this year, when is he ever going to get it done? That is the high wire act that you have to perform when you've gotten to this altitude yet. When you're operating at this altitude, but you haven't won a title yet, this is where you find yourself. Now, logic would tell you, if you're just a, a cricket fan and you know nothing about football, and I were to tell you, okay, on one hand, everyone believes in this dude, and they're so jacked about this year, and a lot of people think he's gonna win, but if he doesn't, they're gonna say, screw it, let's go to someone else. Cricket fan would say, that's stupid, however cricket fans talk. Uh, they may be right, but hey, you fully invested in your program too. Fan investment is A+. Plus. You want an A-plus return on the investment. That's totally fair. We led this show off tonight talking about Michigan. I think there is a lot of similarity to where Florida's program is right now, as we sit here in 2020, going into the 2020 season, as Michigan was going into that 20, what was it, 16 season. There was a lot of momentum. There were a lot of believers. 
And there were a lot of people who had that game against Ohio State circled, and they go into overtime. I remember it as vividly as it happened yesterday. I'm sitting in the press box at Bryant-Denny Stadium. Iron Bowl has already started. I'm watching this laptop computer screen, and I think that that is not a first down, but yet they call it a first down, and Ohio State goes on to win the game, and Michigan really never the same after that. And a lot of people in retrospect, maybe they didn't say it at the time, but a lot of people in retrospect have now looked back on that game, and they've said, that was the line of demarcation. If he would have won that game, Colin and I were just talking about this before the show, if Harbaugh wins that game, if Michigan wins that game, and they go on to win the division that year, and probably the conference, they're a playoff team, who knows what they do in the playoff. The point is the history books look totally different. And it was that close. It was quite literally, I'm holding up a piece of paper, it was that thin, the margin was that thin between Harbaugh being thought of as a guy who has overtaken the Big Ten versus a guy who cannot get it done in the big game against the big rival and he chokes and we're never gonna make the playoff. That's this altitude. You wanna operate at an eight and five altitude? Coming close and making a nice bowl game, you're gonna get confetti raining down on you. But if you wanna operate at the tier one big boy altitude, you got tier one big boy consequences when you don't get it done. And that is why, for Dan Mullen's sake, I sure do hope these preview magazines are right. And I sure do hope all these number one projections come to pass, because if they don't, you won't have to worry about anyone in the media crucifying him. You're gonna have to worry about a lot of Florida fans doing a long, hard look at their head man and saying, if we couldn't get it done in 2020, I mean, no offense, but when are we ever gonna get it done? Turf C, by the way, was another poster on the Swamp 24-7 board today. He kind of flipped it, this is brilliant. This is, I told Turf, I think you run a talk show somewhere. He said, I think it'd be interesting to flip the question and ask this, if this is not the year Georgia wins at all, then when is Georgia gonna win a national championship? If Georgia loses to us this year, does that change everyone's perception of Kirby? I think the narrative of Kirby being an overrated coach would be pretty loud if we beat them this year and they don't make it to the playoff. My friend, you're probably dead on the money accurate. I just don't think that that is tonight's show because I was only prepared to talk about Florida. That is a good point though. He is, um, he's not wrong. All right, let's get, a, let's get a question here out of the way. And a reminder, we get pretty much all your questions out of the way on the Late Kick Extra podcast. I record that on Tuesdays. We release it on Wednesday. We are approaching, I think, over 200 five-star reviews on the Late Kick podcast. I think that's an Apple feature only. A lot of you have iPhones, though. So if you haven't already, give us one of those five-star reviews. The way, the best way to submit a question is in a written review in the podcast review section. You can also hit my email, which you see on the bottom of the screen here. If you're listening on the podcast, it is joshpate706 at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Twitter, at LateKickJosh. Ryan hit us up with this about a month ago, and I've been kicking the can down the road, and I mean to put it in every show, and every time something's come up, so apologies times five, Ryan. Here's the question tonight. He uh, said something is kind of a version of what many people have asked. How will this whole COVID-19 thing and the shortened time players have on campus this offseason affect coaches who are on the hot seat? Don't know that a lot of people have thought about this yet, but it bears watching. Do you think ADs will be more reluctant to make a move? Secondly, do you think it'll affect how much time first-year coaches are given to try and rebuild? Which first-year coach in the SEC does COVID hurt the most? Uh, yes, yes, definitively. I've had people tell me this. The whole hot seat talk, I've been told you might as well table that because as revenues 
either dry up or get greatly slashed this year. In other words, the pool from which you would draw buyout money from, as that gets slashed this year, no one is about to be talking about firing coaching staffs and paying those buyouts and bringing another new staff in and all of the money that that entails. Uh, as for the second question, uh, which first-year coach in the SEC does COVID hurt the most? I don't know if it's a first-year coach, unless you're talking about all assistant coaches, too. I think George is in a pretty tough spot, to be honest with you. Tough, relatively speaking. Nine-tenths of the conference would gladly trade spots with him. But they're not in an easy spot right now at all. You know, Alabama always overturns coordinators. Nick Saban picked the right year to keep his offensive and defensive coordinators. Kirby Smart chose to make changes that I think were necessary, and he certainly couldn't have known what was coming, but yet it came. Todd Munkin came, Jamie Newman came, and then COVID-19 came, and your spring went. And so they're dealing with a problem that several other programs are dealing with, but Georgia's got expectation that those other programs don't. I'll tell you some others that are outside of the SEC that I don't envy at all, like Mike Norvell at Florida State. Think about how much change is needed there and think of how little time he's been able to spend with his players, implementing his culture, never mind the actual offense that they're going to run, just the culture change that was needed there. Guys like Norvell, going back to the SEC, you know, how in the world is Sam Pittman putting together a winning formula in year one for Arkansas? What is Eli Drinkwitz doing at Missouri? So many places where you made a move that was needed and yet now you, um, whew. but the good news is, I think like you suggested here, Ryan, there are probably about as many opportunities to just mulligan 2020, a college football season, as you've ever seen. Here's one other thing to think about as we exit tonight. I was talking to a position coach at a G5 program last week, and I've had some conversations with this guy back and forth. And think about the perspective here. Now, this sounds cutthroat because it is cutthroat. A lot of these up-and-comers, a lot of these coaches who are rising, coordinators, position coaches, and head coaches at the G5 level, they and their families are counting on a certain percentage of the Power 5 coaches being fired because that opens positions for them to elevate up into the P5 level. And as a result, those paychecks get bigger and bigger and bigger. And there's a lot of concern right now. I know it sounds like a first-world problem, but... I mean, this is the livelihood of these folks. There's a lot of concern right now that maybe the opportunities that I've been building towards, me and my agent have been working towards, they're not going to be there. Because if the entire sport's going to freeze, then that means I freeze here too. Good news, maybe some people up there keep their jobs, but that's good news for them. That's bad news for me because I'm looking to elevate up there to where they are. And now there's something a whole lot more than just merit that has entered itself inconveniently so into the equation all right that's enough for tonight remember the uh, late kick extra podcast will be released on wednesday get those questions in we will be back here same time thursday night eight eastern seven central until then for director colin for aaron for tani i'm josh pate this has been the late kick have a great night and a great week god bless Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. 
I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.